Do not fear, God is with you, part two. Two weeks ago, um, we looked at the first part of this message, um, which is incredibly relevant for our lives because all of us in some measure, perhaps at some point in time, have feared. And we see in this context, God is saying to his people, uh, there is no need for you to fear, although the circumstances around you seem to be overwhelming, uh, when we understand the God that we serve, no circumstance is too great for our God to overcome. Um, no difficulty that we face um, will overcome us if we are walking with the Lord. And you say, hold on a second. Let me make sure you understand that statement. When I say overcome us, um, death overcomes us, does it not? And there are times when we face trials and tribulations in life. Um, but yet those are all ordered by the sovereign hand of God. At some point in time, all of us will die. So we should not fear death because for the believer, uh, death is a victory, is it not? Death is something that we would welcome. And when it comes to trials in life, they don't overcome us. You remember the thought of Paul in 2 Corinthians Paul is saying, yes, I'm perplexed and I'm beaten and I've been shipwrecked and I've been castigated. Uh, and he says, but overall, I am not overcome. That's his thought. Because what happens when we go through tribulations and tribulations come our way, they conform us more to the image of Christ, do they not? Now, all of us would say we would love to be more like Christ. Anyone that would say that today? I would, be, would you say amen to that? So you can be a Baptist for a moment. It's allowed. <laughs> Amen, that I would love to be more like Christ. But in order to be more like Christ, it requires what? Hurt and pain and suffering and trials and pressures and difficulties. Yeah, absolutely. This is simply the way uh, God has ordered his world. This is how we become like Christ. Because even Christ himself in the book of Hebrews, it says he, he learned obedience through the things in which he suffered. Loud crying and tears that he would call out to his heavenly father. So if Christ goes through difficulty, then who are we? We shouldn't fear. There's nothing in life that we should fear. There's a thought that I want to go back to from our previous message. As you know, I, I generally end our messages with the final thought. And the final thought was this. Fear will erase fear. When we develop a proper fear of God that is based on God's faithful and awesome character, it will assuage our fears. Um, but if we don't have a right thought about God or right thoughts about God, then the circumstances of life just seem to be too much for us. And indeed, that's a good situation to find yourself when you recognize it's too much for us. The problem that we often find ourselves in is that we think we can handle it. So we muster up something inside of ourselves and the Lord is saying, no, there's not mustering up something yourself. It's a reliance upon me. You remember the thought of Paul, also 2 Corinthians. Paul, um, he had a thorn in the what? Flesh. And he asked three times that the Lord would remove it from him. And in the end, he learned a lesson. And what was that lesson? That your grace is perfected in what? In weakness. Weakness. So when, ultimately then, when I'm weak, then I am strong. This is the Christian life. Now, the um, societal life, if you will, the worldly life, if you will, is the stronger we are, the better we can make life. Yes. The Christian life says, when I recognize my weakness, then by simply recognizing my weakness, then I have to have an alternative, and that alternative is not self. The alternative is the living God and the grace of God. So I fall in the grace of God in the midst of weakness. But sometimes we find ourselves going back to our old ways and we want to conjure up our own strength. And our strength is feeble at best. You know, life is full of opportunities for us to do what? To demonstrate a growing trust in the Lord. Either you will demonstrate a growing trust in the Lord or a dangerous trust in self and what we can say are the alternatives of the world. 
You know, previously, two weeks ago, I've mentioned that there's 70 plus phobias, uh, which include uh, a fear of sermons. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Uh, <laughs> and none of you have a fear of sermons. No one can have a fear of sermons and attend Grace Community Church, right? <laughs> People who have a fear of sermons go to Joel Osteen's church. <clears throat> well, it's, hey. <clears throat> Fear sermons, right? Because you won't, you won't hear them there, right? Um, so a fear of sermons, there's a fear of heights, a fear of spiders, a fear of closed spaces, a fear of death, a fear of religion, a fear of developing diseases, so we isolate ourselves even to an extreme measure, a fear of opinions, some that have a fear of imperfection. There's some that have a fear of school um, or going to school. Listen to that. Well, none of us seminarians have a fear of that, right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> a fear of flying. I would never fly. I was talking to a relative when I was in Florida, and I'm just saying, haven't you overcome that yet? She says, yes, I still fear flying. So what are you going to do, girl? Are you going to take the Amtrak across country? <laughs> and she said, yes, I am. <laughs> it's okay. Right, all right, we'll see you in a week. <laughs> And there are hosts of other, both rational, perhaps, and irrational fears that can debilitate a person so that they don't live a normal life. And in one sense, I suppose the key for us as Christians is discerning what is rational and irrational. I mean, if perhaps on one of my trips to Africa, that, and I've been out in some places that are, my nephew even said to me last week, he's like, Uncle Carl, when you go out, what do you do to protect yourself? I said, first of all, we need to get a proper image of Africa, like lions are not in the malls of Africa, okay? <laughs> no, I'm seriously, people have said that when I visited. They're like, okay, like, where are the lions and giraffes? Like in the game park? Like, <laughs> you know, the Apple store is there, you know? <laughs> 20, you know, whatever is over here, you have to go for the lions. But I've been places where they are. And I suppose if I was surrounded by a pride of lions, it would be rational to have some fear. But at the same time, I would have to overcome that fear to say, how am I going to survive? I recognize it. I need to make some keen decisions in the next couple of moments, or I may not make it back to the saints. Or even when I went in last year, uh, I was going and it was the latest variant of the virus and people were saying, and I appreciate it because they were looking out for me, perhaps you shouldn't go, turn around, um, the, the world is coming to an end. And I thought, no, I don't think so. And I went ahead and did the ministry anyway and marvelous opportunities that were open up and in that venture. No, I'm not going to do it. Misinformation, it's slighted and a fear of sickness, and I'm going to stop gospel progress? I don't think so. History has shown us that people have done what? They've overcome fears, and they've gone, done great things for humanity in general, and I would say even specifically for the cause of Christ. I mean, men and women have overcome fear, and they've taken on great empires. They've made brave decisions when they were facing torture and imprisonment and isolation and even death. Because they would say to themselves, I don't fear death. I will denounce, I will not denounce my Lord Jesus Christ, who throughout the entirety of my Christian life has been nothing but faithful to me. Can you agree with that? And if you came to a point in your life and you were facing death or torture or imprisonment, would you not be able to say, and I would perhaps say it this way, should you not say, God has been faithful? He's been a faithful God. Um, it doesn't matter what I'm facing. I will not fear because he is with me. So how does one overcome fears? How do you operate despite the trials of life and the fears that may be around you? And I would say this, if you're going to do it, there has to be a greater cause that overshadows the potential danger that you face. If you're going to overcome your fear, there must be a greater person that motivates you and says, yes, for that person, I will overcome this fear. I will cast it aside. I would say this as well. There has to be some greater promise that says, trust the outcome of the events despite what you see around you. 
Because we look at times and we look through a lens and that lens is temporary and it only sees what is right in front of us. It doesn't see beyond that. And we have to trust in a God that sees beyond what is right in front of us. And there are people throughout history who have motivated people either to do good things or bad things. I was just... um, at times, uh, you know, whether it be reading or videos, that uh, I find myself fascinated with points of World War II history. And um, one battleship um, that was the largest ever um, constructed was the Yamato. And uh, what is interesting about the Yamato was eventually sank. And um, when the Marines were storming or about to um, come into Okinawa, Uh, the Japanese thought this is perhaps our last opportunity. And so the great emperor, and you have to think, here's the person, the great emperor for the Japanese was recognized as a what? As a God. So as he spoke, you must do. And what he decided to do, as well as other admirals, they decided what we're going to do is take the Yamato and some other flagships, and we're going to drive, they're going to go towards Okinawa. And he says, even beats them and just use these marvelous guns that they had as a defense. And one admiral said, it's simply suicide to do that. We will never even reach it to Okinawa. But of course, what did the emperor say? Do it. Overcome your fears. This is for Japan. And they conjured up something themselves that said, uh, we would do it despite our fears. And actually, on the Yamato, uh, every soldier that was aboard, over 3,000, they were given the opportunity, if you want to turn back, you can. Now, what do you think? In the mindset, particularly of the Japanese in World War II, and to some degrees, it's a part of the culture today, did anyone turn back? No. All 3,000 and so were on board the Yamato. And they find themselves going towards Okinawa. And then a U.S. submarine spots it. And they actually send a signal that is uncoded so that they would realize that they have been spotted. And there is an aircraft carrier nearby, and they begin an attack. They first sent out fighters. And the reason you have to first send out fighters is to make sure that the, the ships you can wipe out their air coverage, because that's what you normally need. You have to have air coverage. But they found they had no air coverage whatsoever. None. So then they called in their dive bombers. Thousand-pound bombs are coming in. And then they they called in sort of their Avengers, if you will, that are low-flying, and they have torpedoes. And Yamato took hit after hit after hit after hit. And you know what happened to Yamato? The largest battleship ever built, it sank. It began to lips. And what they could do in order to counter the lips, they would actually flood a part of the ship. And when they flooded a part of the ship to bring it back, at one point in time, 300 men right away died. Another bomb hits it. Another torpedo hits it. It totally capsizes. And then the armory in the ship exploded. And it was such a violent explosion that seven U.S. fighter um, pilots that were over it, all three, oh, I'm sorry, it was seven of them were taken out because of it. They said you could see the smoke from the Yamato from Japan. It never even got close to Okinawa, 300 nautical miles away. 3,000 men to their death. Why? Because somehow for them, they said, we will overcome our fears for the sake of our country. For them, they said, our emperor has spoken and he is a God. Uh, It is best what he has spoken and they overcame it. And you ask yourself a question, what's the relevance of that to what I'm talking about today? Um, The emperor of Japan was a false God. The cause that they were uh, proposing was not worthy of their lives. And then the question for us, is our God not the true God? <laughs> is our cause not the ultimate cause? Then if we have the ultimate cause and the only true God, and if he speaks to us, should we not be motivated to even overcome whatever fears we may have? So in Isaiah, what is God doing? God is telling Judah, and Judah is his spiritual child, to trust me despite the circumstances that you face. 
Believe the promises that I've made to your forefathers and the prophets, that I will be a faithful God to you even when you are unfaithful. Now, pause there for a moment. Um, Isn't that good news for us? That God is a faithful God even when we are unfaithful? And aren't you glad that God is faithful? despite at times our inconsistencies. And none of us would survive if not for the mercy and faithful intervention of Yahweh. You know, in a recent conversation with another dad, we were actually talking about the theme from this passage. And both of us as fellow dads, we were recounting the times with our kids. You know, kids have absolute trust in dads when they're young, that is, when they're really young. And um, they, <laughs> so I just wanted to qualify that. So all you future dads understand there's a point. Uh, they may still trust you, but they don't trust you absolutely. And in one sense, that's a good thing uh, because I want them to be men and to be women and to ask questions that they don't ask as a kid. And so we talked about being, you know, on vacation. And what do kids do? You're in the pool. I remember the times in... And we'd go to, you know, Palm Desert because it was cheap during the summer. And for hours, the kids were on the edge of the pool. And what were they doing? Jumping in, and I was catching them, right? And then they say, again. And they say, again. And they say, again. And hours and hours. And at times, they'd well, Dad, can we go to the deep end? And they'd go to the deep end. And they'd jump in, they'd go down, and they're fighting their way. And you pull them back up. And they go, oh, again and again. <laughs> Because they knew what? Dad was what? Faithful. Dad is going to catch you. And when you go under and the water is too much for you and your little muscles, you don't know quite how to get yourself up. Dad is going to do what? With his right hand normally, he's going to pull you back up again. Do we not serve a God that is faithful in this way? And at times what the Lord is simply saying to us, jump and I will do what? I'll catch you. Come into the deep end. I will never let you drown. Time after time, I mean hours of it, are just tossing them in the air. I remember those times it was really worse for Joanna than anyone else because it was a, and they want it again and again and again. This simple childlike trust that we have to have as well. And this is what God is calling his people to have, a trust. Now, you say, okay, that imagery is fine. Uh, And the imagery of this illustration is not divorced from what we see in Isaiah or even the Bible as a whole. I mean, there are many accounts throughout scriptures of a heavenly father who does what? He is caring for his children with tenderness and with compassion. That's why you see this language, even if we start back in chapter 40, this is why you see the language of intimate care in these passages that we're studying. Because we see in verse 1 of chapter 40, comfort, oh comfort my people, intimacy. Look at verse 11 of chapter 40. We see him as a shepherd, and how does he behave as a shepherd? What does he do? He tends his flock. He gathers the lambs. He cares them in his bosom. He gently leads them as a nursing lamb. Look at verse 29 in chapter 40. We see this idea of care even more. Verse 29, and it says there, he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Then if you notice chapter 41, then verse 8, what does it tell us there? But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descended of Abraham, my friend. Notice the intimacy of that language, that you're chosen by me, and it refers to Abraham as the friend of God. And indeed, he was the friend of God. And then notice, if you will, verse 13 of chapter 41. For I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh your God, who upholds you, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. So here again is this image of a helping hand from my God. And then notice verse 17. The afflicted and the needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I am Yahweh, I will answer them myself. As for the God of Israel, I will not do what? What is he not going to do? Forsake them. 
I would never forsake you. So here's a question for us friends. Is it rational then to fear when the one who knows all things and controls all things is at your right hand? Who is an intimate savior? No, it's not. See, we should not be like the pagan religions of the world, in particular of this time. And what were the pagan uh, religions doing? They were often trying to appease the wrath of their deity. No, we're not like that. We don't have to worry about sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to appease the wrath of our God. Perhaps he's angry with me now. There is uncertainty to life. It is not that way. God is a faithful God, and God was faithful to Judah, even in the midst of their covenant treachery, because that's who he is. So if you're going to live a fearless life, it has to be a biblically informed life. When I say a biblically informed life, it is not simply putting the right information in one's mind, because there are a number of people that have right information. I mean, there's certain things that you can agree with intellectually about the Bible because there are people who will go through their life believing, will not question the facts of the Bible, but never come to faith. Do you know anyone like that? It's more than just being informed. It's the information that you have stored in your mind and you've asked the living God, will you please make this real in my life? I know these things to be true. Help me to apply it in this situation. So we take these truths and they inform us. Now, let me show you a flow chart. You remember from a couple of weeks ago, um, I talked to you about circumstances. And here's life is full of circumstances. And there's a, a grid of truth, which is our mind. And what we have to do in that grid is to place truth after truth in that grid. So once you have the truth in the mind, it filters the circumstances in life, and then you can properly interpret them. And then this develops our thinking, and then our thinking is biblical, and then we'll have a response. And that response, if we don't have the right grid, is going to be fear and anxiety. But if we have the right grid, then it's going to be courage and faithfulness, which is ultimately then a behavior. So there are a number of truths that are in this text that we should place in our mind. And there are a number of truths, not only in this text, but throughout the scripture that would say, God, here's a circumstance that I'm facing. Let me place this in my mind. And this is why the scripture tells us, even by Paul, remember what he says um, in Ephesians 4 and 23, that we need to be renewed in the spirit of our what? Of our mind. Think differently. So when the circumstances of life come, the circumstances like what? Loss of job. We're wondering can I pay for school? What about living? What about shelter? What about the dangers in society? What about the pressures that are increasing when it comes to this anti-Christian atmosphere that is around us? And what about Judah? What are they facing? What about the trials that they face in exile? They had a, obviously a lack of freedom. There's an anxiety of wondering whether or not God was on their side still and whether or not he would come through. There is a fear of abandonment. All of these were the circumstances of life, but now we have to meet them with truth. And this is what happens with the grid. As I illustrated, now perhaps I did, I forget now, a couple weeks ago, that the tighter the grid, the more error can be caught. Do you agree with that? So if we are have a sieve, if you will, and there's some where the openings are going to let more through. And there are others that are very, very tight. Nothing is going to get through except for the water itself. And even the water takes a while to make its way through. And so with our mind, what we have to do is fill it with these biblical truths so that when we're faced with the doctor saying to us, friend, I have news for you. It's not good. Or when a loved one calls you and they tell you, yeah, they told me it's stage four right now and there's nothing they can do. And you may have had friends that have had that. There are people in this room, they've gotten a diagnosis and then a prognosis and it wasn't favorable. And so something has to catch that and says, okay, my God is a faithful God. 
And it is not this quackery of some of these preachers today that would say what you need to do is now just plead the blood of Jesus Christ, denounce that prognosis because you're a child of the king. No. The child of the king in those moments says, I trust the king and I trust his sovereign plan. This is hurtful right now. So there are many circumstances in life that we face and we have to develop a biblical grid so that we can live fearlessly. Here's a thought for you. We are not unlike Judah. We're not unlike Judah. And what had happened to Judah? They wandered away from the fold of God. They became like the people around them instead of being a unique people. They doubted God's capabilities and whether or not he was more powerful than the nations or, or more powerful than the other deities. They substituted religion instead of uh, being or showing fidelity to Yahweh, this covenant-keeping God. They doubted whether or not God, God could or would forgive them. But they had forgotten that God is a forgiving God. They had forgotten that God forgives so that people would fear him and exalted his name. They doubted whether or not the hesed of God was really and truly everlasting. And this word hesed, we've talked about it before. And I'm sure you've heard other preachers talk about the word hesed. And what does hesed mean? Who remembers that? Loving kindness. This covenant love. This faithful love. This love that is stern. That is absolute. And so they would have to remember, wait a minute. Psalm 136. And what does Psalm 136 say in every refrain? Every refrain, for your loving kindness is everlasting. And he takes the people of God through history and he says, in this example, his loving kindness is everlasting. But for Judah, that would be in question. And I would say then for us, the question is, is this unfamiliar to any of us? And what do I mean by that? That we doubt as well. That we can wander as well. That we wonder whether or not he'll forgive me this time around. Maybe this is too much. I find myself coming to the Lord again for this same sin. Can he forgive me? Will he forgive me? God loves to forgive. Amen? Amen. And so the text tells us this. and Several things. By way of review, God is superior to the nations. Um, And the outline is clear. We see this in verses 1 to 7. He is superior to the nations. God opens his court case and he says, all of you come before me, but you come in silence. Why should you come in silence? Because ultimately you have nothing to say. Simply listen to me. And God is superior in his comfort. We see that in verses 8 through 20. He's superior in his comfort because really in verses 8 to 13, God is the one who's going to give you victory. We see that because you're my servant, you're chosen, you're my friend. Don't fear, I am with you, verse 10. I'm going to strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will be like that father who's going to pull you out of the deep waters. I will be like that father who will catch you and say, I'm a faithful God. I give you the victory, it is not you. And what was the course of Israel or Judah's history? Time after time, we see in their history They would align themselves with the nations, thinking if we align ourselves with the nations, then we will have victory over our enemies. And God ultimately says what? The victory is not in horses, it is not in chariots, but it is in what? The spirit of the living God. And then, really in verses 14 to 16, he tells us what? He provides transformation. And then, do not fear, you worm O men of Israel, I will help you, declares Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And what is the transformation? Notice he refers to him as a worm. And it's another way of saying that you are feeble. However, I'm going to do something in your life. I will transform you. In verse 15, behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. I will transform you. You go from being a feeble person, a feeble nation, a nation in exile, but I'm going to make you a nation that is a conqueror. It is only by the hand of the Lord. And then he provides sustenance. We see that in verses 17 to 20. God is going to open the rivers and make the valleys a pool of water. He is going to bring about a rejuvenated Judah, and even their land will be refreshed again. But then uh, here are some thoughts that I gave you. Um, And there are these. 
Let me remind you, the truths that we can take and sort of bring them all together are these. Number one, God is going to give you real hope. Only God gives you real hope, and we see that in verses 7 and 8. We need to understand this. It is only God who's the one that's going to support you. God supports me. If God is with me, then no power can stand against me. God is the one that's going to empower you. He's the one that's going to give you strength. We see that in verse 10. God is the one that's going to uplift you. He upholds you with his righteous right hand. God is the one that fights for you. God is the one who is this holy covenant redeemer who is on your side. God's the one that gives you success. You may look for success in the world, and it is not to be found. It is only found in the grace of God. God is the one that hears your cry. And this is what we see in verses really 17 to 20. Read, if you will, verse 17. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. And their tongue is parched with thirst. I, Yahweh, will answer them myself. When we cry to the Lord like a child... God is the one that hears us. And this is what we have to do. In part, in our Christian life, uh, we have to learn to maintain a childlike perspective. Do you agree with that? We sometimes think that we have grown up, and we have not. The moment you think that you've grown up, you're on a bad, how can I say, uh, path, if you will. Childlikeness is necessary from a heavenly father who watches over you, who cares for you. And if we don't maintain that childlike perspective, we will, in fact, go astray. Here's a last thought for you. And we're going to finish this chapter by looking at verses 21 to 29. And this would be, the big thought is this. Understand that God is superior to any alternatives. And this is what you find under God is superior to the idols. There's no other alternative. Let's, let's unpack this for a moment. And what do we understand? It is this. The worthless gods of the nations don't compare to the king. Notice verse 21. Present your case, Yahweh says. Bring forward your strong arguments. The king of Jacob says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. And then he says, declare the things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. And then in verse 25, he says, I have aroused one from the north. He has come from the rising of the sun. He will come call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. So what is happening here? So this court case continues. And what is God saying? Okay, bring forth the proof that these other gods that you serve are worthy of your affection and attention and your covenant. Bring forward your strong arguments. And of course, what happens in a court case? Uh, One may say, um, I wish to come forward to present this information. Here's my argument against this person. Here's the evidence that we saw. We actually have um, this person on camera. We actually have a confession from this individual. It's clearly his motives. The records show that he had made threats to my client many different times. So those are the arguments. And God says, bring forth your arguments, the king of Jacob says. But what you need to notice is, notice verse 22. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. And the former events declare what they were. He's saying, do you know history? Do you know the beginning and the end? Your false gods that you're serving, can they declare to you what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future? And I think he's also perhaps a play on words when he's talking about bringing forth your arguments. He could even be saying, bring forth your idols. Now think about that for a moment. If you have to bring forth an idol, that isn't much of a god, is it? Because you remember earlier he said that they make these idols and they use nails to do what? To hammer it in so it doesn't do what? So it doesn't totter over. So he says, take up your idols, bring them to court, and let them speak. Now, right away, it doesn't make sense because you have to do what? You have to bring in the idol itself. 
So right away, you've lost your case. But do it anyway, God is saying. Make your case if you can. But there is no case to be made, is there? None at all. I am the one who knows the outcome of everything. So pause for a moment and consider this. God is the alpha and the what? Omega. Omega. He is the first and the last. Hmm, question. Does that include every event in your life? Hmm, Is there anything outside of the alpha and the omega? There is not. Does that include the event where somebody does say to you, friends, I have bad news for you. It includes that. It includes the happy moments in life. It includes me seeing my great niece when she walked down the aisle and I thought, oh, so this is what it's going to be like when one of my daughters gets married. And I started to cheer up a little bit and I had to kind of, in that time, pull it together a little bit. (laughs) That was a great moment. But there is also a moment I had to think about. There's my eldest sister, her grandma, who really helped raise her so much, was a godly woman that one day she got the news and they said to her, Harriet, it's gone too far. It spread too much. And I was even in California, and I remember calling her and saying, I got this news. What are you talking about that you only have but so many months a day? You can't be saying that. That can't be true. And it was. And now she's been in heaven. (laughs) Yeah, he's the Alpha and the Omega. Either you're going to trust that or not. And what God is saying, hmm, are these idols worth following? Do they know every event in life? It's utterly ridiculous because you even have to carry them into court. And they are the ones that you fall on and that you trust and that you rely upon and you will reject me, Yahweh, the great covenant-keeping God, and this is your substitute? A poor substitute indeed. And he says in verse 23, I love this, in verse 23, indeed, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about in fear together. So do something that would intimidate me. You can't. And when it says here, anxiously look about, go back with me to verse 10. This is why it's so important that we look at these things and get a flow of thought. Because remember this thinking in verse 23, that we may anxiously look about. Go back to verse 10. And what does he say there? Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously do what? Look about. And it's really... Don't be dismayed. And that's the word. Don't be dismayed. Why would you anxiously look about? Because the gods that you're trusting, I'm saying to them, do something that would make us dismayed. You can't be dismayed because I'm with you. In every event in life, I'm with you. And the things that you cannot control, I'm with you. Don't don't be dismayed because these gods that you trust can dismay no one. Not at all. They offer you no comfort whatsoever. And so he goes on to say in verse 24, in one sense, sort of closing the case, if you will. Um, and really, it should end, it should be 21 to 24. 21 to 24. The worthless gods of the nations do not compare to the king. It should be 21 to 24 because he ends it and he says, Behold, you are of no account and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is what? An abomination. Make sure you understand that. So he's not only indicting the idols, but he's also indicting what? The idolaters. You are an abomination. Throughout scripture, we see that God, time after time after time again, he says that idols are an abomination. Here he says, those who trust in idols are an abomination because you're choosing them over me. Utterly ridiculous. Why would you do that? And notice, if you will, The second consideration from this, the worthy king of the nations uses kings for his will. We need to understand that. Where is that in the text? Well, let's read. Notice verse 25. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. He who has declared this from the beginning, that we may know. Or who has declared this from the beginning that we may know? Or from the former times that we may say he is right? Surely there is no one who declared. Surely there is no one who proclaimed. Surely there is no one who heard your words. 
And then he says, Formerly I said to Zion, Behold, here we, they are, and to Jerusalem I will give a messenger of good news. So what's the point here? God is calling a leader. Who is that leader? Look with me at chapter 45. God is essentially saying, I control all the kings. I am the king of Jacob. I control every ruler, every government, every nation. And what I'm going to do, Judah, I'm going to free you and I'm going to call another leader who will wipe out Babylon. Trust me. But can the gods tell you that? They cannot. Are they the ones that are calling Cyrus? No, they are not. I am the one that's doing it. Because we see here in 45, notice what it says. Isaiah 45, thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed. Pause there and let that sink in for a moment. I know perhaps you've heard that before, but notice when we think anointed, the mind maybe more naturally may go, or the first course of, of reference is what? When we think anointed, we think what? You can say it. We think Christ, right? The anointed one, the Christ. But anointed is simply saying in this context here, I have set him aside for my will. Cyrus is my anointed. And notice what it says, whom I've taken by my, which hand is he taken with? Oh, there's that hand again. This this same hand that catches his children and guides his children is also the same hand that says, Cyrus, I'm raising you up. Now go and set my people free. And what is he going to do? He's going to subdue nations. He's going to open doors. Remember, God earlier said he's the one that opens rivers. Now he's the one that opens doors. He's going to make the rough places smooth. All of this he does. And it goes on to verse 7. Notice, if you will, verse 5. I am Yahweh, and there is no, no other. Besides me, there is no what? God. Here's the last thing we need to consider. The worthless gods of the nations cannot be trusted. Go back to chapter 41. Go back to 41. So God raises up Cyrus, which we'll develop as we move through these texts. I am the king. I use kings for my will. Trust me. Then the gods of the nations are worthless. Verse 28. But when I look, there is no one, and there is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer? And the answer being, no one. Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. So why would you trust them? Here are your final thoughts. Let me give them to you. Normally I have a final thought. I have some final thoughts. Some biblical thoughts. If you want to develop a biblical grid to overcome fear. I'm going to give you six truths that you can place in your grid, along with everything else that's been said. Six truths. And number one is this. You can overcome fear by meditating on the sacrificial love of God. Friend, you face fear, then what can we do? We look to the love of God, this love of God to which we can never be separated from. Um, John 14, 18 communicates this. And even in Hebrews 13 and 5, Christ says that he would never leave us or do what? Or forsake us. How can you overcome fear? You can do this. Number two, you can overcome fear by remembering the absolute sufficiency of God. You remember the absolute sufficiency of God. I want us to look at this together. Go with me to um, Genesis, the absolute sufficiency of God. Because you remember... In Isaiah, he has referenced Abraham, and he refers to, you are a descendant of Abraham, my friend. And Abraham, this man of God that the Lord calls out, and we see here in Genesis 17, what does it say? God is the Almighty. He is the El Shaddai. He is the all-sufficient God. And this is what it communicates. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be, be blameless. I will establish my covenant before, between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. So Almighty, El Shaddai, the one that is complete, the one that is sufficient. And then go with me, if you will, to um, Genesis 28. Genesis 28. Speed up just a little bit. 
Genesis 28 in verse 3, and it says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. So the blessing, if we're going to have it, comes from the Almighty God. And then also in Genesis 35, Genesis 35 and 11, a part of the blessing as well is what? It says, God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation, an accompanied nation shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. And you see the same thought that's in 43 and 49. But also notice, I want you to see this turn with me, familiar text, but let's look at it together. Um, Psalm 91. Psalm 91, beautiful picture here, and it's relevant for what we're saying, that we must overcome fear. Psalm 91 and verse 1. He who dwells in the shadow of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the what? Of the Almighty. A shadow. And we think about a shadow, what is it communicating? The sense of coverage, the sense of protection. And so God is the one that protects us. Number three, if we want to overcome fear, do this. Overcome fear by reflecting on the greatest gift of God. Reflect on the greatest gift of God. Romans 8, 31 and 32. And what is it communicating? It tells us there, 31, if God is for us, no one can be against us. And he proves this point in verse 32. Because in verse 32, what does he say? If God has given us his only son, will he not freely give us what? All things. So the question is, why should I fear? If the living God is giving me the greatest gift possible, and that is his son, then is he going to leave me to my own ends? Will he leave me to my own strength? Or will he not protect me? No. Number four, overcome fear by doing this. Constantly are committing to the evangelistic plan of God. Matthew 8, um, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, what does it tell us? That we're to be a people who to go. We're to be what? The scripture tells us we're to be lights and we're to be ambassadors and we're to be witnesses and we're to be vessels. You say, wait a minute, tie this into fear. Question for us, if, I, if we're to all be honest here, are there not times when you know you should have been a witness to someone and you weren't? And in that moment, you became silent. The Lord is saying, speak to that person or you know that you should. And it isn't an amazing. It doesn't take someone that is large and threatening for us to be intimidated, does it? It could be a little child. It could be our nice little grandmother that, you know, just as sweet as can be. But we don't want to tell grandma, grandma, unless you turn to the living God, there's a price to be paid. Now, we don't want to do that. Or there's that person that's next to us, whether it be on a plane or a bus or wherever it may be, that the opportunity is there for us to witness to them. I've told you before, when I'm on my Ubers, I have a plan, and that plan is I'm paying for them. Uh, they're, they're at my service. <laughs> so I said, friend, do you ever think about religion? Oh, I do, but I'm really not into it. I have my own way to God. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Now, <laughs> let me talk to them, right? And then when we fly, sometimes in joining a fly, we'll get, I'll put her in a, a window seat. I'll take an aisle seat. So if it's a woman, she's going to witness. If it's a man, I'm going to witness. And at some point in time, we turn it. And the way things are nowadays, people put in their headphones and they tune you out. But anyway, when those opportunities are there, then we say, okay, friend, do you know Christ? Or where are you going? Oh, I'm headed here. And they ask me, where are you going? Oh, I just came from speaking at a retreat. What sort of retreat? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> this is the retreat. But isn't it amazing how we can fear when we shouldn't? He's given us a commission. The king of Jacob that we see here has said, go and you're to be my ambassadors. Lo, I'll be with you always, even until the end of the... But yet we fear. Is a fifth way to overcome fear. Overcome fear by resting in the sovereign timing of God. Resting in the sovereign timing of God. You meant it for evil. God meant it for what? Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time and place for everything under the sun. 
there's a life and there's death for casting stones and gathering stones. We have to trust that. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 6 and 34, um, adding, when you worry about life, it adds a certain richness to life. Is that what Jesus Christ said? No, it didn't. No, it didn't. It serves no purpose whatsoever. You cannot add to life by worrying about life, so stop worrying. There's a sovereign timing to everything that occurs under the heavens. Let me rest in that sovereign timing. And aren't we fully aware, at least we should be fully aware, that God's timing is often not what? Not ours. But it's beautiful, is it not? Number six is this. Overcome fear by seeking the undeniable peace of God. Look with me at Isaiah 26. The undeniable peace of God. Now, it tells us the steadfast of mine, you will do what? Keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. And then it says in verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. Are you going to trust in the Lord? Is your mind going to be fixed on him? Are you going to have a grid that is informed biblically? And it's not just information, but you're saying, God, help me to live this out. Why am I fearing this situation when you're a sovereign God that controls everything? Are you not a father that by his right hand will catch me every time? Are you not a father when I'm in the deep waters of life, if you will? Won't you rescue me every time? And sometimes God is this way. You know, with our kids, you know, they all, I love swimming, being from Florida. Um, did it since I was like that. I even swam in lakes where we knew there were alligators. So we, we love water, Floridians do. Um, but at some point in time, we had to let our kids, when they were swimming, sometimes go down for a little bit and struggle. Yeah, they learn to use those arms and kick a little bit more. And you know what, when, when we allow them to do that, and then we pull them up, when we allow them to do that, what happens to their muscles? They get stronger. They get used to it. They say, this is what I do. And sometimes your heavenly father is going to allow circumstances in your life where he's saying to you, you need to kick a little bit. You need to learn a little bit. Your faith needs to be tested a little bit. But if ever you're sinking and you need me, I'm right there. Amen? Father, we thank you for these words you give us, your grace that is so evident. Help us to live them out. In Christ's name, amen.